0: This is Climate Justice, y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision making table. Because of that, we decide to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South hit the hardest
1: by the climate crisis. We're using good old-fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to transform the region. The usage of y'all in the title is on purpose. We are honoring our Southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. All right, y'all, it is season two of
0: Climate Justice Y'all.
1: Let's get started.
0: Hey, y'all, I'm your host, Abigail Franks, and I am joined by the fabulous Marisha Malcolm. The South, especially recently, has been ground zero for disasters exacerbated by climate change. Like in fact, in 2021 alone, there were $20 billion climate disasters with most of them primarily hitting our region. Today, we're bringing in Michael Esteluca from Healthy Gulf to talk about the realities of disaster recovery, the need to transform, how we adapt to disasters, and how to ensure our communities are safe and taken care of.
1: Climate Justice, y'all. It's real, it's here, and it's about time we listen to folks like Michael Esaluca about the importance of preparing our region for their unnatural disasters. All right, y'all, let's get started with the show.
0: Good morning, Michael. How are you?
2: I'm good. Very well. Thanks for having me.
0: Good. Yeah, no, thank you for making time out of your
2: busy schedule for us. Could you like introduce yourself and your organization? For sure. So my name is Michael Esaluca. I use she, her pronouns. My name is Michael. I'm a woman. I just have very creative parents. Um, I live in Louisiana and I work as an organizer in rural Southeast Louisiana for Healthy Gulf, which is one of the few regional environmental organizations. We work basically from like the Galveston Bay to Pensacola. Um, but most of our staff are working in Louisiana um, from Southwest to Southeast Louisiana. And we do a variety of things. Um, Our mission essentially is to support healthy communities and healthy ecosystems in the Gulf of Mexico and work towards a just transition, which is a transition towards like as our economy and our energy system shifts, we wanna make sure that the transition to a more regenerative um, economy is equitable and that there's justice for every single person every step of the way.
1: So that's cool. You're kind of like leading into my next question. So we all know that uh, Louisiana, it's ground zero for climate disasters for the most part. Um, Can you talk about the experience with disaster recovery? Definitely. Yeah. And I
2: will say, yeah, Louisiana is ground zero, but I think it's all over the Gulf. Um, And sometimes Mm. we get a lot of attention here in Louisiana because of New Orleans and because of what happened after Katrina. But... But people in the Mississippi Gulf Coast, you know, um, and people in Southeast Texas, they're no stranger to disaster either. Um, But yes, we part of living in the Gulf means disaster response. So we have hurricane season, the Atlantic hurricane season starts June 1st. So it's coming up right around the corner and it ends November 30th. um, And every year, you know, we've got several months where we could get a severe tropical storm or where we could get a really bad hurricane and the 2020 2021 atlantic hurricane season was one of the worst that we've ever seen so we got um hurricane laura and delta in southwest West louisiana hurricane laura hit i think it was november i want to say of 2020 um, and then delta came three weeks behind it laura hit as a category four delta came back as a weakened, as a weaker storm but you know just right on top of that cat, cat four and then last the last day of August, actually 16 years to the day after Katrina, Ida came um, and hit southeast Louisiana. And I I did, I live in New Orleans, did evacuate um, for a couple days. I went to Memphis. I just got so stir crazy that I pretty much went back like two or three days after the storm came. Yeah, and, and we were, yeah, we didn't have power for like two or three weeks um, in New Orleans, and we, we had it good. I mean, the rest of the state, you know, some people were without power for like a month or over a month. But I, I remember thinking, um, I remember being kind of upset and stressed out. Well, everyone was stressed out. And we didn't know was, what was going to come next and what was going to happen. But I remember thinking like, oh. I'm gonna go back to the city. I'm not anything to do. Like I work as an organizer, everyone's displaced that I organize with. So like, there's not gonna be any work for me to do. And I was totally wrong. I pretty much immediately started learning how to tarp roofs and gut houses um, and then linked up with some other folks who were interested in doing the same work. And so I would say like within a week of the storm, we were out tarping roofs. Um, and then 10 days later, we were gutting houses. And within two weeks, we were starting to deploy like hundreds of volunteers. So this was last year. Yeah, this was last year. Yeah, we did hurricane response, pretty hardcore response from like the first week of September through uh, January. Um, and when I say we, I say healthy. It started off with me and my capacity as a healthy golf organizer. So I was looking around. I was in, I was in the river parishes. Um, I was in the coastal parishes and the bayous. And I was seeing, you know, every person that I should be organizing with is either displaced from their home, family that's been displaced, has severe roof damage, may not have been displaced, but has, you know, damage to their home, or they're just in a bad situation because they can't get running, you know, they can't get running water sometimes, they can't get electricity, they can't get fresh vegetables or gasoline was a huge issue, so I thought, you know, the least I can do is, is start pitching in and start helping out, and that's what you do with your with your anxiety and your grief after the storms come as you, you start cleaning up. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a powerful experience. I, I mean, I was like a climate warrior before <laughs> before this, this hurricane, but you really have to see the aftermath of disaster to understand what this climate crisis is gonna do to us.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it becomes personal to you, you know? like. And when it becomes personal, I guess you do become more of a climate warrior. I see Marisha has her hand up. Yeah, so I, I'm, okay. So I'm a little
1: confused on what y'all do. And so are y'all just hands on like disaster recovery team or do y'all do policy work? Can you just go a little bit more in depth and like what y'all do as far as uh, leading towards a just transition and whatnot?
2: Absolutely, yes. And that's a good question. And I should've, I should've explained more at the beginning. So Healthy Gulf, um, we do a couple different things so we have scientists technical support on staff as well as communications and organizing support on staff so we we basically are we do many things we work on um protecting wetlands protecting water quality and then just transition to like a regenerative economy but within that just transition bucket we're also working with frontline and fence line communities to stop the expansion of oil, gas, and petrochemical industries. So we do things like when there's a new permit for a plant that is up for review, we'll submit technical comments, we'll communicate with communities about what's happening so that they know what the impacts to human health and their environment would be if this permit was approved and the plant came in. Um, I organize community meetings, I get people out to public hearings, um, and we also do community air monitoring, where we deploy air monitors throughout areas that are overburdened with toxic emissions and teach residents how to monitor their own air, um, record the data, analyze it and submit reports to regulatory agencies. So we do a little bit of everything. Our goal mainly is just to support communities in fighting for clean air, clean water and the right to thrive. but. Like I said, I mean, if everyone that you, if you're an organizer um, or an advocate and everyone that you're supposed to be working with is gone because of a storm or is traumatized um, and really dealing with the heart, you know, people are not in their homes. Like you gotta be your basic needs met, right? Food, water, housing, before you can start thinking about the bigger picture. So, So I shifted to do recovery and that is typically not within our wheelhouse. But you gotta do what you gotta do. And I think people at the Gulf know, like if your community is in need, we're gonna step up and help out because sometimes it's just us and we can't rely on the government in many cases to do what needs to be done. 100% understood, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about like, you can't rely on the government and stuff? Because it seems like the work well first of all let's backtrack it seems like you and people at healthy Gulfs don't sleep because y'all are doing just about everything <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, y'all are it sounds like y'all are not only trying to address the root of the problem which is climate change and environmental injustice because that's what is causing slash what is making the results of communities you know being impacted by these severe disasters that keep getting worse but y'all are also helping communities like on the ground too so like what i know you briefly mentioned it earlier about like what that looks like and like could you also expand more about the lack of governmental help and stuff because it sounds like y'all get there first
2: yeah definitely i mean volunteer and it's not just healthy go all volunteers like we always arrive first i mean and I think, yeah, you're. I mean, we, do, we definitely work a lot. We do have like a good, we've got 15 or 16 folks on staff. So we've got like a good sized staff. We're like a decent mid-sized organization. And you know, people work hard, but we all work hard because we care about this work. Um, everyone in our movement, I think, for the most part works hard. But yeah, organizing is one of those things like, Yes, people know climate change is real. Yes, they know that they're being poisoned by chemical plants, but they also have to, like, they have to go to work. They've got to feed their kids. They've got all sorts of other things that become more urgent and more of a priority than dealing with something that can seem very big picture. So if you want to ask people to, like, show up for a public hearing to stop a chemical plant that you know is going to accelerate this climate crisis, sometimes you have to show up for them first and and, and let them know that you hear them, you understand like what their, the needs of their community and their family are, and you're going to be working with them to fight for those needs before you ask them to show up for your agenda. So that's like the spirit that I try to kind of embody as an organizer. But to go to your question about showing up before the government, I mean, Oh, man, I hear how tired you are. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, so this is the thing. Like, we have the (laughs) we live in the wealthiest country in the history of human civilization. Um, So you think like if people have needs, like their needs should be met. Um, I'm not saying like people want to take a handout, but in the case of a disaster, you'd think that the government would have a system for people to be made whole, especially 16 years since Katrina. Like, why is this still an issue 16 years since Katrina? We don't know how to deal with these storms. We don't have a plan for what for, we we know how to evacuate, but we don't have a plan for what comes next. And it's really shameful. Um, And I think, I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I think one, a, a lot of the policies that we have around like the Stafford Acts, the national like the National Flood Insurance Program, a lot of the like minutia of FEMA, a lot of these were established and like really got off the ground decades ago, like before the climate crisis started getting so bad. And so you wouldn't see storms, bad storms every year. It might be every ten or 15 or 50 years. But now we're getting a storm that you'd see every 50 years, every two years. And Uh so they haven't really got the program. And so I think that's part of the problem. I think the other part of the problem is that while at the local level, in a lot of these Republican states, you know, we've defunded all of our social services. So in terms of like support services to help people get access to programs for recovery and rebuilding their homes, there's nothing and we're dealing with people that, you know, we have limited public transportation, we have terrible public education, bad infrastructure, like we have defunded our communities and now the disasters come to make it worse. So I think that's the second part of the problem. The third part Part of the problem is, to be honest, I think a lot of people make a lot of money after disasters.
1: Oof! <laughs> oh, you just touch something.
2: You just touch something. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, like, you're saying people make money
2: after disasters? People make money, and not people who are whose homes were destroyed, but contractors, insurers. You know, people. This a, it's a money game because what, what, what we saw. I mean, this is part of the reason why. We, we, we shifted away from doing supply runs and delivering hot meals to doing tarping roofs and gutting houses because the price gouging that contractors can do is crazy. I mean, we did a couple roofs where like, you know, we did them for free and people were like, they were gonna charge me eight, $900. And this is like an elderly person living on a fixed income. Like, where are they gonna get that oh, money? Yeah. We gutted one guy's house and he told him a contractor quoted him $12,000. We did it for free. Oh my gosh. So A lot of people are making a lot of money and there's not really, I mean, especially with insurance. I mean, so I'm not a policy expert quite yet. I'm starting to learn more about this because I'm reeling the scale of this crisis that we face and that these disasters are really gonna demand that all of us people who are on the ground and volunteering become experts in policy because we're already experts in our own experience. But But we need to learn how to translate that into language that our leaders and our policymakers can understand and we need to learn how to intervene and engage in the halls of power where decisions around disaster response are made where decisions around climate change and reducing emissions are made
1: so i wonder if you can even answer this question that i have um so i hear you talking about the negativity parts and whatnot um about uh like climate disasters and whatnot so so we want to move towards like improvement and whatnot so how at a systemic level how could how could things be improved um when it comes to like common disasters i don't know if that made sense maybe i need to elaborate a little bit more Let me- no
2: it does make sense and i mean you can feel feel free to elaborate more if you'd like um because i'd like to hear your you know your, your opinion but it does make sense
1: okay well if you if you can let's see okay Beth, You have something
2: to okay all right sure um Yeah, and I think that's a really good question because I think too often when we start thinking about this climate crisis, like the scale of it feels so big, and we feel so like powerless to do something about it. Um, And to be honest, like I think certain people in power have an incentive to keep us demobilized and demoralized because confronting this climate crisis will require that we break down every system of injustice Mm -hmm. that has brought us to this point, Mm -hmm. Um, like racism, classism, all of these things, you know xenophobia um but i will say we got to be solution oriented um and that's also something that we have to remind ourselves as climate leaders as leaders come with solutions we don't just identify problems and there's a lot of things that can be done i mean i think you know we need to go to the root issues right pollution and injustice a lot of the people that we were trying to help out you know with ida it's like their homes weren't livable before the storm, you know? Like yeah, we had, yeah. Their homes weren't livable before the storm, like they, you know, they didn't have money to fix their stuff up. And so, you know, we had deferred maintenance for decades that Ida came to make worse. We had uh, drainage canals that hadn't been cleared. We had open sewage dishes, ditches, septic tanks instead of actual proper, like, infrastructure. You know, we had a failure to build levee systems a fa- or, or a failure to build other flood infrastructure to protect communities. So. There needs to be a strategic investment in infrastructure to protect our communities. And it's not just levees and it's not just home elevation. Those can't be the only two answers. You know, there's gotta be other ways. Um, And I think this is where we can really turn to some of the indigenous communities on our coast, especially in coastal Louisiana who have generationally you know practice like stewardship of the land and have learned to live with rising tides and low and lower in tides and have learned like certain practices for for rebuilding our coast and start do start modeling our behaviors in terms of coastal resilience and coastal restoration on their work and their knowledge and scale it up using the resources of the state um, but i mean in the immediate a lot of communities need uh, they need levies if we like we <laughs> I mean it's not the best in the long term because a levy can also contribute to like us and like make it into that sort of like policy stuff but a lot of communities that I work with they tell me they need a levy they need a levy on the riverside and they need a levy on the gulf side and when they don't have a levy they get flooded every single year
0: I'm gonna sound so ignorant can you describe a levy for me I don't
1: live on the coast <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's not just levee
2: it's not yeah, and that's no. That's a good question. Um, it's not just a coastal thing. So basically, it's a river thing. So, anytime there's a river, typically people are going to build a levee around it, which is basically a mound of dirt. Um, and sometimes it's sometimes it's made of cement and, and there's like an actual flood wall. But typically, it's just a very big mound of dirt. And so, the Mississippi River after um the 1927 flood, uh, where you know like hundreds or thousands of people died when the river flooded really bad the um, Army Corps of Engineers and like this, the federal government, they they levied the Mississippi using forced labor of Black men um, along the river, actually, forced labor camps. Um, but they levied the river. And what that did was it protected people from flooding, but it also stopped uh, this like meandering behavior of the Mississippi because the Mississippi is like a wild thing and it just moves. Um, and it it's like motion and then just like, Meandering's sort of path has built South Louisiana, like all the dirt and sediment that came from the headwaters of the Mississippi and, and have washed all the way down to the Gulf. Like the, it has deposited sediment on our coast and, it's, and that process has built land. And so that's where our bayous come from.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So levees like could be an immediate solution, but it's not like a good
2: long-term solution. It's complicated, yeah, because I mean a levee um, it prevents that natural deposit of sediment, and so mm-hmm. the salt water of the Gulf, especially as seas rise, is like eating away at our marsh grass. And mm-hmm. so, if it's eating, if the salt water of the Gulf is eating away at our marsh grass and destroying our marsh grass, but the river is not depositing sediment, then you know you're getting in a situation where you're losing um, you're losing land. But the thing is, it's not just it's not just that it's also oil and gas corporations have dug the hell out of our wetlands they've destroyed our wetlands these canals <laughs> <make laughs> like we have invasive species that eat our wetlands so there's a lot of things that are contributing to this coastal land loss along with rising with rising tides um but but the levee i mean the levee system is is, is typically how you know we deal we deal with the river because the river floods and and when sometimes when those storm those um the water comes in from a hurricane. I mean, that river, that river floods. And I mean, in, this, in Ida in Plaquemines Parish, which is the coastal Southeast Louisiana, it's where the Mississippi opens up into the Gulf of Mexico, um, what I what I call uh, the place I call the end of the world. Um, in Plaquemines Parish, you know, they, the the, the levee that they had it breached in three places. And there were several communities that took on over eight feet of flood water. So, yeah. so you know, they want a levy. Um, but in terms of other systemic solutions, I mean, I think like coastal restoration is so important. Um, and I'm, again, I'm just starting to learn about this because I've been in the oil, gas and petrochemical world, but now this hurricane has made me, that these hurricanes have me, I always knew, but these have really burned in my soul how interconnected all of these things are. And so I think, you know, like long-term, very large scale, Coastal, rest- coastal restoration projects, backfilling the canals that were destroyed by the oil and gas industry, building new, like planting marsh grasses, planting cypress groves, and things like that, that will hold our, our land together and prevent the, 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 the seas from washing it away. I mean, there, there are these infrastructure needs that we have. I mean, we need better drainage, that's a huge issue. Um, There's also the the piece around um, like weather hardening homes um, and home elevation. So weather hardening is a name for a practice to make your home more more resistant to like fires, flooding and and storms and wind. Um, So in the Gulf, you know, we don't get too many too many fires, but um, there's you know, there's something called like a hurricane fortified roof standard um, and that you know, uh, that's like a a certain standard that's above like the typical like roof standard for construction and to make the the home like very resistant to hurricanes. Because in Ida, it wasn't wasn't a major flood event in most parts of Southeast Louisiana, it was a wind event. So a lot of people, their roofs blew off and then, you know, the rain got in. And then there's also the home elevation piece. And elevation is complicated because a lot of people can't elevate. And we're basically, that is the only option if you live in a flood zone. Um, so home elevation is like when you put your home up on stilts. So if you go down to Bayou or like way down the road, which is what we call down the road, down the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. uh, into some of these communities, well, it's, it's a wild sight. You're gonna see, um, you know, single wide trailers hiked up on 16, 15 foot stilts. Um, oh man. Yeah, and that's not, that's not an uncommon sight. And to go back to the, what I mentioned earlier about NFI, the National Flood Insurance Program and FEMA, you know, they have instituted these guidelines basically um, saying that if you live in a, a floodplain that you have to elevate like four feet above the floodplain. So in Plaquemines Parish, that's 14 to 17 feet. You've got to go up. In parts of Lower Terrebonne and Lafourche that got a direct hit. In Ida, it's six to eight feet. And uh, you know, to elevate 14 feet can be about $350,000. Woo! And that's to yeah. put a trailer on there too. What? That's just the elevation. Jeez. That's not to buy a new home or a trailer. That's just elevation.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. Good grief. Well, that kind of, okay. So what I'm hearing is that we need to, one, invest in and help out with natural infrastructure and natural, like helping our land so the land can help us too. And then also preparing homes and such. Cause you talked about wind. That made me think of, uh, You know, Alabama, we're going to hit with tornadoes left and right. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't even consider the wind when it came to hurricanes. But what could so how could communities like better prepare and adapt to climate disaster? Because, you know, we do need systemic change and we do need policy change. And obviously we need to push for that. But what could communities do like right now?
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: I think that one thing that we've seen is that where um, the mutual aid has been most effective has been in communities that have strong ties, like communities where people know each other, where they check on their neighbors, where they care about each other. And those are the places where, you know, don't, you're like you're not going to let your neighbor overheat and die in their home by themselves because you're gonna knock on their door the next day after the storm and say, what's going on? Do you need to come over and get some water? And I think that's like the most important thing and it's something that's often overlooked, but just those basic community relationships of trust and respect and care um, are really important for setting a community up. Yeah, and it's a Southern thing to do. That's just what we do down here. I think that, you know, it's important to it's important to be prepared um, before the storm comes. So, I think if commun- if there can be one thing that we've seen is like it's really important to have a plan, not just, they, they say, have a plan before the storm comes, you know, and typically what they mean is they, they like to individualize everything, like have a plan for your family, have a plan for your evacuation. But really, there, the community needs to have a plan. So, if there's a community center that is a trusted space, you know, a church or, or a senior center or something like that, or school, like they should have some solar generators. You know, they should have some like just like dry goods or something like that so that, you know, battery packs, um, mobile hotspots, things like that. So that they know that when the storm comes, they can open up a cooling center and, you know, people are not going to overheat and die because oftentimes a disaster isn't just a disaster. It's everything that comes after it as well. So I think those are those are some two really good steps that can be immediately taken. And then the other thing is too, like all of this stuff about like the, the the federal policy and the state policy, it is so Byzantine and bureaucratic and confusing. And it requires such an insane level of self-advocacy that most people just don't have. Like you have to be a lawyer to understand some of this stuff and even lawyers don't understand it so I think um communities getting together sharing information and sharing knowledge is really critical but also holding their leaders feet to the fire throughout the year because these disasters will only get worse and our leaders do not have a plan and they need to they need to be held accountable and they need to be forced to make a plan because if they don't make a plan our communities will die and that that's like how serious this is.
1: Michael, you are preaching this morning, oh my gosh. I know, it's like 9
2: a.m. and I'm ready to fight. Like This is just how I am. Like, it's got, <laughs> people can't take me anywhere. <laughs> I'm going yeah. to talk about this type of crisis. But
0: I mean, so, but when it comes down to, I mean, I mean, you're making me want to fight, but you're also giving me hope because like, it sounds like communities, like when it comes down to it, we have each other, you right. know? Yeah, and so like, and when you take care of your community, you take care of yourself. And I think that's something that we have to learn, especially if we're like steeped in individualist mindsets. And so, yeah, thank you for that. You, you're teaching me a lot here. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. agree.
1: Okay, Michael. So we have one last question for you. This is like one that we ask all of our guests. It's very popular on the show. Um, so what gives you hope? What makes you want to keep going, keep, Doing this great old fight, this long, great fight. What gives you hope?
2: To be honest, I'm going to have a long answer to this question because I think about this a lot. I don't know how long the podcast is supposed to be, but I'm just going to get into it. Okay, It'll so the be first as well- thing is... Yeah, we can do as long as you want. You can tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the first thing that I'll say is that if you don't have hope in this crazy, evil, brutal world, to be honest, you might as well give up and kick the bucket because we need, we can't, like... We, we just can't let this world, I mean, this world beats us down every step of the day and it's honestly to have hope is an act of resistance. You don't wanna be blind to the issues and pretend like be la 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 and head in the cloud and not realize what's going on and these systems of injustice that we are all dealing with. But to have, to realize that, to see what's happening and to still have hope for our people, that's an act of resistance. And so I think that part of it, to, to be honest, is spite. Because I am not—I refuse to let these evil people that, that are driving the climate crisis and driving these systems of oppression let me get beaten down. So it's a little bit—it's a little spite, but but to be honest, what I think about a lot is, um, you know, I think as young people, we often believe that we are the ones that are going to change the world. Like we're the ones that hold the answer. It's going to be our generation that makes the change. And I think that each generation does make change. But I think about this, but I look back on people 100 years ago and they didn't care less than we did. They weren't more like they weren't uh, less smart or less intelligent than we are. They weren't less passionate or less hardworking than we are. Sometimes change takes generations. And we stand on the shoulders of generations of movement fighters. And I always think like if I was an abolitionist in the year 1820, knowing that I would die before emancipation ever came, does that mean I'm gonna give up or stop fighting? No, because the work that we do lays the foundations for the people who come after us. And so to get more specific, what gives me hope? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, this climate crisis, it's it's terrible it's devastating and people don't really fully understand like how bad it's gonna get like you know heat death mass migration like escalating storms internal displacement of millions of people wildfires like all of that is in our future very soon the breakdown of every system food systems you know, communities, relationships of trust, that's that's coming and people aren't really prepared. But at the same time, to confront these things, like I said, it requires that we confront every single system of injustice that has brought us to this point. And so it is both a terrible beast that we face, but it's also this moment of opportunity to change things and to heal our world as we heal our planet and so that gives me hope and then I guess finally I would say I think one of the problems with American culture is that we are so divided and atomized and isolated and I think this is why we have so much depression and like mental health issues um, and violence and hatred of one another Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for why we are so isolated from one another and atomized but I think organizing it's healing work and the process of organizing is the process of healing community relationships of bringing people together across their difference and of creating new bonds and new relationships of trust and respect and I think that it's like that's one of the most powerful things and so that keeps me going um it really keeps me going it's almost like faith you know it's something that you have to believe in because it makes you strong.